Amen. Very good morning. Uh, We are in our fourth week of our sermon series called Chosen. We're looking at being a chosen people and what we are chosen for. So Ben kicked us off uh, three weeks ago on Chosen for Holiness, 1 Peter chapter 1. And that was about how we engage with the world around us. And then we looked at chosen for Jesus with Adam, and we looked at how we relate to the God who saved us through Christ. Then we looked at chosen for good last week with Mim, and we uh, thought about how we demonstrate our faith in Christ. And this week we're in 1 Peter 4, and we're looking at chosen for love. And we're thinking about how we relate to one another. So please do turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, We're going to study verses 1 through to 11 today together, but I'm going to read out the whole chapter um, because it's been a joy reading through 1 Peter together. 1 Peter chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is finished with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. This is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to, the, according to human standards in regards to the body, but live according to God in regards to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
In case you couldn't tell, 1 Peter chapter 4 is about living as a minority in a majority culture. It's about living as a minority in a culture that do not share their faith, their worldview or their belief. That's what 1 Peter 4 is about. And we've been on a journey over the last 2000 years where Christianity has gone from minority to majority. And then in only the last hundred years or so, it's dropped off a cliff and we're now minority again. And I think the church is still trying to work out what that means for us, which is why we are looking at what it means to be a chosen people, to be a minority in a majority culture. Now, you probably don't need me really to illustrate this for you. If you think about your friendship group or your workplace, the vast majority of people will not be following Jesus. And as we've looked at in this series, those who are called by Jesus to follow him are meant to be living radically different lives in order to glorify God and to transform the world around us. During Freshers' Week, uh, we were giving out pizza to lots and lots of university students. Put your hand up if you received a slice of pizza on the... Yes, fantastic. Oh, yes, quite a few. Um, giving out pizza to lots and lots of university students. And I had um, a girl come up to me and she said, said, are you one of the vicars? And I said, yes, I'm, I'm one of the vicars. And she said, what do Christians think about drinking? And I sort of caught a bit off guard and I, I tried my best to like explain it, but I didn't want it to be like really legalistic or heavy. And anyway, I thought I was doing a fairly good job, <laughs> you know. She was like, so you're saying that basically Christians just do what everyone else does and that's okay. I was like, ah, oh, I have catastrophically failed <laughs> to explain to you what Christians think about drinking. And I tell you that to illustrate a point that uh, whether we explain it well or not, and we all have times where we do not explain it very well, Christians are called to live differently, not just in regards to drinking, but in regards to everything. And that will set us at odds with the culture around us. We are a minority in a culture that does not share and indeed often explicitly rejects our faith we may find that people distrust us. We may face some opposition, some prejudice. But around the world, in some places of our society, but mainly around the world, our brothers and sisters face what Peter was writing about in this letter. Active and intentional persecution for their faith. These first Christians, as Christians around the world today, they were suffering because they believed in Jesus. They were oppressed because they believed in Jesus. They were persecuted because they believed in Jesus. And that's what Peter is alluding to in verses one and two about suffering and then goes on to talk about at length um, in, the, in the latter half of the passage which we're not looking at today. So as we unpack verses one through to 11, we're asking this question, what does it mean for us to be a community together as a minority in a cultural majority? What does it mean for us? And we're taking verse eight as our cornerstone. It means that we have been chosen for love, to love one another. 
And this morning, we're going to understand what love looks like within community and importantly, what love doesn't look like. And we're going to start with that latter point. You've heard of two truths and a lie. This morning, we're looking at one lie and two truths. And the lie, and we'll explore why we believe this in a moment, the lie is that love means redefining sin. The two truths that we're going to look at is that love means radical hospitality and resolute service. Let's look at the first six verses. Now, I want us to start here because this is where the passage starts. But also I want to start here because when we hear the word love, especially in regards to Jesus, we tend to hear this word in a way which is completely shaped by what we're calling our post-enlightenment culture. That is to say, the Enlightenment, which is a, a, a movement in the 17th and 18th centuries, and this is massively oversimplifying it, and my historian wife might kill me, but we'll wait and see. The Enlightenment was a movement that tried to replace the power of kings with the liberty of the individual, yeah? And it tried to replace the idea of one true religion with religious tolerance, And it did this and it succeeded largely in part uh, because everyone was coming from a Christian worldview that recognised we are made in the image of God. And therefore, each individual is worth respecting and religious convictions um, are worth respecting even if we believe each other to be completely wrong. The Enlightenment was not all good, it was not all bad, but it happened. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, 300 odd years later, this way of thinking, the priority of the individual and tolerance has completely shaped our culture. And we've held on to these ideals, even though as a society, we no longer believe the cultural Christian worldview which made them uh, so potent, so powerful and acted as a check and balance on them. As a result... The ideals of our society are now unrestrained individual liberty and tolerance. These are the the highest values of our society. So much so that ironically, if you were to not believe in individual liberty, you would have your liberty taken away. And if you were to not believe in tolerance, you wouldn't be tolerated. But it's not just shaped our society, it shaped us and it shaped the way that we read the Bible. So when the Bible says the word love, we are thinking about love along the lines of individual liberty and tolerance. And this gets us into all sorts of problems when we read in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, that word sin. Because we think that love means letting everyone do what they think best and not challenging them on it. Individual liberty, toleration. And when we hear love covers a multitude of sin, we think that must mean that loving people is at odds with talking about sin and that love is more important. And the logical conclusion of this is that we start to interpret the Bible differently and move away from its plain meaning so that it doesn't say anything that might hurt or offend or challenge anyone because we think that love is more important and love would never hurt or offend, even for the sake of truth. 
That's our post-enlightenment worldview. But that's not where Peter is coming from. Peter says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. And then he lists some sins in verse three. You see, Peter's love for these people is undeniable. He shares in their suffering, in their persecution. In fact, part of the reason that he is especially suffering and especially persecuted is for their sake. He loves these people whom he is writing to. But for him... He is longing for these first believers that they would know freedom from sin. There is no contradiction for Peter and for the scriptures between loving someone and calling them away from sin. In fact, for Peter and for the Bible, the two are one and the same. Peter is saying that he wants this congregation, these churches to be done with sin. Not to say that they are going to be perfect, but rather that that they fully accept God's definition of sin and don't want anything to do with what God defines as sin. Being done with sin means a freedom to live according to the will of God, verse two, and not be held back from evil human desires. Now, this is such a powerful and a beautiful thing, which, which Peter is going to pick up this idea that, um, that uh, the freedom that God has for us is so uh, powerful that it even gives meaning to our suffering. Yeah? Jesus's uh, suffering is drawn as a parallel to ours. Just as Jesus' suffering brought the punishment uh, yeah, brought us freedom from the punishment of sin on the cross. So too does our sin, uh, our suffering, sanctify us from the permeation of sin and leads us to freedom. And then Peter, and that's Peter's theology of suffering, if you like, is it's a chance to be done with sin. And this is someone who's going to be crucified upside down for the sake of his faith. And then he lists some specific types of sin and says these have no place in the church. He's not condemning anyone. He's not making anyone feel guilty. He's simply encouraging them with these words. Don't waste your suffering. The abuse and the oppression that you face because of your faith is refining you and setting you free from the stuff that is holding you back. Some of us today are facing difficult situations because of our faith. We're being asked to sign up at things for things at work that we cannot. We're being asked to make sacrifices to our lifestyle that feel hard and they feel painful. We're losing friends because they will not tolerate being friends with someone who holds to Christian ethical teaching. In all of this, Peter would say, don't waste it. Don't leave it on the side. Don't try and keep it away from you. Bring it to God and allow in that cauldron, in that fire, him to refine you and to use this moment to draw you deeper into himself and deeper into the freedom and the love that he has for you. Now, here's the thing. Because of our post-enlightenment worldview, many of us, even at this moment, are trying to redefine sin. We've convinced ourselves that it's something that God isn't really that bothered about. To to pick a few specific examples from the list, 
It's just a few too many drinks. I'm sure Jesus wouldn't mind. It's just sex and I love them, so it's okay. It's just a, a little bit of gossip and I like to know what's going on. It's just the odd fight. I have this kind of God-given aggression. It's just a few prayers to another God. We basically all pray to the same God anyway, right? The problem is that when we think it's just sin, it's not that bad, we therefore tend to think it's just freedom, it's not that good. When we minimise the misery of our sin, we minimise the joy of our freedom. And Peter does not want that for this church. As a basis of our love for one another, we have to have a steadfast commitment to telling each other the truth. True love loves truth. True love loves truth. Now, if you are new to faith today or if you're exploring faith, I want you to hear this. When we talk about sin and when the Bible talks about sin, it is always in pursuit of holiness and freedom and joy and peace. We don't talk about sin because it, this, you know, Christianity is all about feeling guilty and we just love feeling guilty. We, we talk about sin because we've heard the call to freedom. We talk about sin because we've heard the call to freedom. And that's what Peter is doing in verses one through to six. The world around us might even be abusive towards us because we don't join them in sin. That's fine. They'll have to explain their actions to God, Peter says. Love does not mean redefining sin. Instead, it means radical hospitality and resolute service. Verses seven through to nine. I find these verses... Utterly bizarre. Peter's train of thought seems to be this. Um, Jesus is coming back. Therefore, make sure your lives are shaped by his imminent return and pray. Above all, love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Have lunch together. It's so weird. (laughs) Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Let's unpack what's going on. You see, verse eight in this uh, chapter functions a little bit like a photograph. It's got both a foreground and a background. The background of verse eight, love covers a multitude of sins, is the work of the cross that Peter has just been expounding. He's saying that, um, that, the, that the love of God, the the love that God has for us sent Christ to the cross in order that our sins may be forgiven and be covered. That's the background of the photo, yeah? But in the foreground of the photo, he puts love for one another covering a multitude of sins. Now I want you to track this with me. He is not saying that the cross of Christ was not powerful enough to forgive all sin. What he's saying is that the cross of Christ is so powerful that it created a community in which we are to be a living demonstration of the mercy and love of God to each other. This sermon is called Chosen for Love. You could call it the community that the cross creates. Peter is saying that if you want to know that you're forgiven, you should be told it by the cross 
and feel it by the church. I want us to enter into the scandal of this for a moment. We are called to minister the cross to each other. The ministry of the cross is not just the job of whoever is preaching or or whoever is presiding in communion. The ministry of the cross is something that we share and hold out to each other. When we interact with a brother or sister in church, we should want to see the cross be made more powerfully in their lives. We should be encouraging them in godliness. We should be celebrating their faith. We should be honouring their integrity. We should be valuing their testimony. And when we have that type of relationship, we should be challenging their sin. And above all, we should be forgiving them when they do us wrong. Why? We are called to be a living demonstration of the mercy and love of God to each other. And so I want to ask, do we interact with each other in this way? I'm glad to say that often in my experience, I receive this kind of ministry from you, brothers and sisters in my small group or over our alpha group or, um, or at the end, people encourage me and challenge me and the cross is made more present in my life because of the community that I am in. But, but have you seen this as your role? Do you, do you understand that when you come here on a Sunday, you are not just coming here to, uh, to, to listen and to sing and to rejoice. You're coming here to minister. Those things are all good, by the way. You're coming here to minister the cross to those around you. You are in small groups on a Tuesday and Wednesday ministering the cross to those in your groups. And the result of this is that we should show hospitality to each other. Why does he talk about hospitality here? Well, because for Peter, the surest way, the surest way to know whether you are loving your brothers or sisters is the heart that goes into making them a meal. It is relatively easy to offer someone a meal. It is painful and hard to offer them the cross. When someone's coming round for a meal and you're cooking, you're preparing and the kids are screaming and you're running late and the cooker's broken and the microwave's not working and then the cooker starts working but then the gas is not working, you have to call out the gas man. When you are in the facing everything that is going on, it's so easy to start grumbling and complaining. Why don't we always host? Why is it always us hosting? Why is it never them? You know, or, or they arrive and like, I mean, this happens with... Um, Family all the time, doesn't it? You know, they arrive, you just hoover the carpets and like everyone takes their shoes off except from that one bloke. It's always a bloke. And it's, like, it's like mud just everywhere. It's so easy. It's so easy to offer a meal without offering the cross. Which is why Peter says, offer hospitality to one another. But it doesn't stop there. Without grumbling and complaining. In the moment, we're going to share this meal together, which crowns every other meal. It's called 
the Eucharist. It comes from the Greek word Eucharisto, which means I give thanks. And this is a meal that we believe is not just a memorial of the cross that once happened, but it's the way that God makes the cross real afresh in our lives today by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you want to know what hospitality without grumbling looks like, then look at communion. Look at the Last Supper. When Christ, about to go to the cross for the sake of his friends, about to be nailed to the cross, to bleed and to die, to have his body broken so that we could know wholeness and relationship with God, he lifts up the bread. And what does he say? Eucharisto. I give thanks. A Eucharistic community is one in which we give thanks for the way that we can offer ourselves up for the other. Love means radical hospitality. It also means resolute service. Verses 10 through to 12, uh, 11 even. Now, if there's one word that I could ban in church, it would be the word just. I'm not talking about just as injustice. <laughs> That's not where I'm going with that. <laughs> just as a qualifier before a description of your gifting. I hear this all the time. Oh, I'm just helping with tea and coffee today. Oh, I'm just on prayer ministry. I'm just, um, I'm just hoovering after. Oh, I'm just cleaning the toilets. Oh, I'm just a small group leader. I am banning the word just to church because of what it says in verse 10. You are stewarding a gift of God's grace. There's no minimizing about it. I'm banning the word just. Ben said amen, so it's really all right, okay? Some of us do down what we do to serve. Others of us make it all about us. None of us are beyond the instruction of Peter. You are to be a faithful steward of the gift that God has given you by his grace. Now, we tend to think of stewardship in regards to money. And it's this idea that we're looking after something and putting to work something that is not ours. Now think about that in regards to the way that you serve. The gift that you've been given is not yours to do whatever you like with. It's not yours to diminish. It's not yours to say just about. You see, when we view what we have to offer each other as a gift from God and we're stewarding, stewarding it, then it change, changes everything. We're no longer just on the welcome team because someone needs to do it. We're on team because we have the gift of remembering people's names and situations and making them feel loved, whether it's their first week in church or their hundredth week in church. When we're on refreshments, we're not just making coffee because we don't mind doing it. We're there because God has given us a gift to steward of making people feel at home in a shared space. And honestly, I am sick to death in some ways of being on the preaching rotor because people think that the preaching rotor is more important than every other rotor. Church, let me tell you the rotor that I'm on every single week and it's my favourite rotor to be on. It is the welcome team. That's the rotor I love to be on. 
You know why? Because every single morning and every single evening, I get to look people who are coming through the door. I pray that some of you might have experienced this morning and say, you are welcome here. It is so great to see you because just as this meal is a sacrament, something that makes visible the invisible reality of the cross, the welcome team are a sacrament, what makes visible the invisible welcome of heaven. Now just take that and apply that to every other team in church. You're not just doing anything. You're stewarding a gift of God. Church, I felt heavy preparing this because it weighs on my heart when I hear people say, I'm just this. You're not just anything. You're a child of God. You've been given a gift of grace and you're using it. You're stewarding it for the glory of God and the transformation of his world. There's no just about it. Some of you haven't even joined a team yet because you don't think you've got anything to offer. You've been given a gift of grace by God for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. I don't know what team you feel stirred to join or don't feel stirred to join. If you are here today and you're like, I have no idea what gift I've been given. In fact, I probably haven't been given any gift at all. You need to come forward for prayer. You need to come forward to pray, for, pray, be prayed for by someone and find someone who knows you and loves you here and ask them, what gift have I been given? And then find a way to use that gift. Maybe there's a team for it. Maybe we need to make a team for it. <laughs> I don't know. There's probably some area of church life where it's already being expressed and God has given you that gift for the reason of serving the work of his kingdom in this place. Let's stand. Let's stand and worship together. We're called to be following Jesus, building community and loving Newcastle. Following Jesus. Love does not redefine sin. If you know that you need to come before God this morning and say, Lord, I hold my hands up. I've been redefining sin and saying it's not really sin. Then come forward for prayer. Building community. We are called to love each other deeply and to minister the cross to one another. Do you do that? And do you experience that? If you do, If you don't, if you don't feel like someone is ministering the cross to you, I want to encourage you to come and get prayer. Don't tell me that you don't feel like someone's ministering the cross to you if you refuse to come forward for prayer. It should be happening in all ways and all times over tea and coffee and small groups. But it's definitely happening when we pray. So come forward for prayer. Because we need the ministry of the cross, finally loving Newcastle. How are you playing your part in God's transformation of this city? Sunday worship is not the only time that God does this. But it is one of the times that he does this. 
It is one of the ways that we love Newcastle, is gathering here and worshiping together, being a community of wholeness and healing and a community where we serve the city. That happens on Sundays. How are you called to play your part in that? I would love to invite you forward to prayer if you are on a team and you need to know afresh the strength that God provides to serve in that way. I'd love to invite you forward to prayer if you are not on a team because you've done yourself down. And I would love to invite you forward to prayer if you are committing to never using the word just again about the gift that God has given you. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit of God. Come, Holy Spirit of God. You might just want to close your eyes. You might want to part your hands. You might want to raise your hands. You might want to kneel. You might want to lie down. Just as the team starts to play over us, come, Holy Spirit. Come.